0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, welcome again. And uh, some of you I met just even this week have moved to Nashville within the last uh, month And so I want to welcome you to not just our church this morning, but to Nashville in general. And if you're uh, visiting, um, I hope that uh, you not only find yourself um, encouraged to meet others here, but uh, find uh, a place in Nashville. One of the things we long for people who visit this city um, and visit our church in particular is that they realize um, this is a place that they could stay and be known. Um, You know, when I moved here, uh, my wife and I moved here, gosh, 15 years ago nearly. And um, I remember uh, a friend that we had met then uh, who they moved um, a few years after. Um, But he and I were, he called me up and he goes, hey, there's a game show tryout downtown in Nashville. Let's go check this thing out. So (laughs) I go with him downtown and, and we get in line. And we're in line to go into the Wild Horse Saloon. I don't know how many of you have visited the Wild Horse Saloon uh, down there on 2nd, but you know, you're missing a treat. And um, we're in line, and I notice as we go to this thing, I don't know really much about it at all. All I've heard is these like random tidbits of it. But what I am taking in is everybody who's in line. Uh, there are people, I don't know if you've tried out for a game show, maybe there are a select few of you who have done this or made it or done it uh, at some point, but there are people in line with these shirts that are like, pick me, basically, like the most loud kind of thing you would think. Some of you, you'd see just like, look at me, you know, like enthusiasm, enthusiasm uh, run wild. And then you go inside. We go inside to the, to the second floor, and they put us around this table, and they begin to ask questions of us and um and soon uh you know i'm like okay this is just so weird and then finally they go okay thanks everybody for coming and they say uh, as we're all walking away they say to me and my friend they say oh hey y'all forgot a couple of things and they bring us closer and they say hey we, we want you to move to the second round and i'm like are you serious, man? Like, so I start thinking in my head, I'm being picked. I'm, I'm really this great, you know? Like, no, I'm not. And so I show up, um, you know, at this hotel. They asked to come to a hotel, uh, the hotel right across from Bridgestone. I can't remember. I think it's the Hilton right there. And they have like in one of the spaces the game show set up. And so you have like it's a mock thing where you have to answer questions y'all, I was so bad. Like, I'm not excitable. You know how, the, what they're looking for is somebody you get on stage, hey, and you do this. I'm like, uh, B, you know, I'm just doing this. They're like, dude, you're terrible. You know, <laughs> like, we don't want you for this show. Um, and so, my, but my buddy somehow got, you know, he's a lot more enthusiastic and better and actually answered the questions than me. But it was fascinating because watching this, it was some show with William Shatner, it was like in his heyday coming back, and it's called Show Me the Money. And at the time I remember my boss saying, if you had gotten picked for that, we would have just fired you on the spot probably. Um, But it was one of those things like, it was fascinating to be a part of this whole like excitement downtown. Like there was just, it was like all these people and oh, the game show's coming through and I could be a part of that. And it makes me think often of what it's like for us to live in the Christian life. Like we can, we can think of church and living in the Christian life and living relationally to God and other people as him wanting to pick us when he's already called us a son or a daughter. Like we can put ourselves in a position over and over and over of wanting to be as enthusiastic as pick me, wearing what we need to wear, putting on the right clothes, whether it be for other people or for God, to dress up the right way, to have the right answers, to be in the right position, just so we can be called back, just so he can pick us, but we've already been called a son or a daughter if we're in Jesus. So why do we live that way? I know I do all the time. For me, I find myself back in that scenario wanting to prove myself and wanting to show myself over and over as someone who is great, is Christian, is nice, is in good friendships, everyone is okay with me. You know, where am I with all the people that I may not have? You know, like you kind of play those games. God's relationship to us is not a game. He doesn't put us in that position. He doesn't want you to try and earn something back. You're not trying to to gain a spot in his, in his church, in his show, and that we can even treat church that way. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you are coming back because you've been burned by this element, this feeling of Christianity is just this, you know, aspect of like a game show. You know, I'm just trying to keep up and maybe, you know, you just tire out or I don't feel like he picked me and those kind of elements. That is not what it is, and, and especially in this letter to the Galatians, Paul, who wrote this letter in the 50s, 60s AD, is trying to get across to a group of people who, th- who really felt like Christianity is where they're supposed to be, and they've been hearing all these lies. All these lies about, you know, that's great, Jesus is great, but he's really not enough. You got to put on more. You got to act this way. You got to take on these rituals. You got to live these traditions in order for you to, to really be known as a part of God's family, as a son or a daughter. And isn't that terrible? And yet we do the same thing. I'm so grateful that Paul takes the time not just to talk about theology, but he takes the time to talk about what does it mean to be adopted? And we're gonna hit on this more in a little bit, but do you know that theologians, like the greatest of theologians across the centuries say that for us to understand what it means to be adopted children of God means it's not just some intellectual thing, it's a deeply emotional experience that we live in. And yet we don't because often we put ourselves in that position to continue earning some sort of relational capital from God and everyone else, thinking that we need to have that. Not just earn it, but keep it. And God is saying, it has been done. How do we, through this passage, how does Paul try and express to both the Galatians and to us, this group of people in Rome who are not Jewish, who did not know anything about Jesus until Paul came, what does it mean to live in adoption both legally and relationally? Legally and relationally. You know, he begins in verse one and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the ele- elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. You know, the, he's trying to put across a, a very like daily kind of issue that, of adoption right then. So that, what does it mean to belong because for many of us, the experience and feeling of adoption just peters out. It can feel like it just waves on a shore. It can come up and back. And some days we just feel really great, and some days we don't. But Paul has to begin by saying, look, let's talk about the legal aspects of what it means to be children of God, because you're not going to feel it every day. But even when you don't feel it, how do we know it's true? How do you know that you're actually a son or a daughter? And when it uses the word sons, just as even the previous verses, it's talking about encapsulating the whole of us, those who are children of God. Now when we talk sometimes in our culture about what it means to be God's children, that's different, that's different nomenclature. Sometimes what the Bible is talking about is not just saying we are all children of God. In fact, it's not saying that. Yes, we are all images of God. But what sin has done, and why he's using this language of adoption, is we have this separation from who we are in God. And so, in order for us to actually be his children, he has to come and adopt. He has to do a legal work to bring us back in. And he doesn't do it in order for us to to be enthusiastic or make something, he does it through law, he does it through legal means. What he's saying here is that they're guardians and managers. He's talking about someone who, even if they're a son in the family, if they're a minor in Roman culture, if you were a minor before the age of, oh, 25, you still were not considered an heir, actually. Even if you had that down the road, you may have, may have everything coming to you as the firstborn. You're still only as good as a, as a slave in this culture. And that's the only thing practically, and that's how they were living. And in fact, the guardians and managers were these people over them. It's like we have spoken even last week of what is a guardian? It's in their time it was this person who would look over the children and they would keep them. Not as a father, but as a disciplinarian. It's actually the word pedagos or pedagogy. It meant someone who looked over them. But not Caring for them, not in their needs, not considering them a son, but a slave. And and, and, and the Galatians here, even though they know they're in Jesus, they're still living, they're going back to that old life of thinking that they're not even worthy to be called a child unless they take on, unless they do enough to be picked by Him. You know, uh, our family is one that has been uh, brought up through the beauty of adoption beautiful picture and work of it and as we've done that maybe some of you have gone through that or experienced it or heard or talked to people who have done it it's interesting to talk to uh, people about that whole process because as you decide that this is the process you're going to do there are a lot of things that come from it you have to do things like a home study and you have to invite someone in to your home and make sure your home is, is not dangerous or that your your life, you know, relational life in that home is, is not scary. It's it's fit for a child to be in it. And you also have to go to things where you have to like get your fingerprints done. TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. You gotta go to that, you gotta go to local and uh, state government officials to check your background and make sure that you can legally actually take on a child. There's no prior issues, there's nothing in your past. They, they look you over and you go over and over. And if you miss a certain date, you have to do it again. I've had to go through that process a number of times and felt that in even our own family and what we've done. And, and I'll tell you, you think about why. Why do they have to check me so much? Why do they have to look into the private parts of my life to to make sense of that? When it says here, in the same way also, it says that as children, we were enslaved to elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why in the world would God do that? Because in order to adopt us as children, in order to bring us in, God himself puts himself in the position to experience his own law that he actually set up himself. He actually is born of a woman, meaning he takes on the relational mess that every single one of us have done. He goes in for the home study, when he doesn't need to at all. He takes on the careful combing of what it means to grow up, and even if you read about his life and what it means to not measure up or to feel like an outcast, his own family called him crazy. And if you read the Gospels, he experienced the cramping life of many siblings. He experienced the disapproval of when he got lost and his parents couldn't find him, and he He experienced the rejection, not only as a child, but even as an adult, of not belonging, of feeling like he was misunderstood all the time, rejected, even up into his death. He takes up all of these experiences, all of these things, born of a woman, so that his study, his careful combing of every part of you and I that think and feel and experience and believe there is no way God would want me as a son or daughter. He goes into every corner of that in order that we may know that he goes to the depths and heights and breadth to bring you in as a child. And not only that, it says born under the law. Think about this. Who set the law up? God himself. And then he sends his own son under it to feel its weight. All the ways that you feel the weight that you're not a son or a daughter. All the moments that you think, If if I really confessed, if I really took the moment of silence that Wayne gave us a minute ago and really confessed the things that really are in there, all the ways I haven't lived up to being a son or a daughter by the law, there's no way God would want to keep me as a son or a daughter. He would revoke it. He would take it away. He would change his mind. You know, there's no way in in the reason that God sends Jesus in this way legally to be born under a woman to experience all of that rejection, but also to experience the law is so that you know there is no way, no condemnation, no lie that can be told you by Satan or any person on this earth that can tell you that you are not a son or a daughter. He puts his very son under that exact same law to feel the weight and the lies and the pain and the struggle and yet to fulfill it and to take it on so that we might be called sons and daughters. To know that the law is taken up in him legally, that the courtroom is set. Look, there's one Tuesday a month, unless they've changed this, that they actually have this beautiful time of adoption in our city where at the courthouse, it's that this. I don't know if it's the first Tuesday. I can't remember if it's the first or one two. I know it's one Tuesday a month. And all of the families who are going to adopt are to go in that month. That's when you're up there and you're sitting in this long room, if you've ever been up to the courthouse, and sat in that room and there are benches facing back to back and they're just families and kids running everywhere, being held. And you get this feeling, this idea that We're doing something legal. We're about to take on something and there's a witness. You have your lawyer with you there to to say we have gone into every corner of their house and we have taken up every law that we thought that they might break and we're gonna be a witness that they are okay to take care of this child. Jesus has done that and then beyond. He has not only gone into those spaces, into the courtroom himself, he has said, I am willing to be rejected on the cross as a son when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He even lets his sonship be in question so that yours would not be. So that on the days when you wake up and you experience the waves coming back and forth, you are legally declared. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're experiencing, first and foremost, as a son or daughter, because of Jesus, nothing else. There's no excitement. There's no t-shirt you can put on. There's no amount of work you can do to say, pick me. There's no enthusiasm. There's no zeal. There's no tears. There's no excitement that can change that. Because Jesus has put himself in that way. Look, tomorrow is is, uh, Martin Luther King Day. And for many of us, maybe in this room, just even looking out, it is regularly maybe just a holiday, a day off. But there are a lot of people for us, around us, and in our city, and in this country, and in this world, that that day recognizes more than that. And look, as a white man staying up here talking about this, I can say there are a lot of ramifications that I don't understand what it means to have a different color of my skin and experience the rejection or even, even a history. But what I do know is that we need to, as a church and as people, regardless of where we are, learn what empathy means. To stand in a stead and to know what it's like to be someone else. Jesus does that. You realize that Jesus is a first century Jew who didn't have the same skin color as us and yet identifies himself with every place that you are so that you might be free. And not just free, but called an actual child, brought in. You know, there's an incredible part of history called Juneteenth, Many of us may not know what that is. If you are uh, African-American, you may celebrate this day. It's a fascinating part in history. It's amazing. It's not spoken of much. But Juneteenth is one of the oldest known celebrations commemorating ending of slavery in the United States dating back to 1865. And it dates back to a time in Galveston, Texas on June 19th when Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger Landed in Galveston with the news that the war had ended and slavery was over, and he stood up on a a, a, uh, on the balcony of a a, um, prominent home there in Galveston with an executive order, and this is what he said to those out there listening. He said, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection there here, uh, heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for ra- wages, And they are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. And I love what is being said in in that speech because what it's calling forth is to live in the freedom. And we know very well in our country all of the, look, 1865, we can look fast forward to 2020. We know all the tensions we live in now. But what is gonna practically change the way that we love one another and belong to God and care for each other? And I love what it says in the end, not supported in idleness there or elsewhere, that we are made, there's no waiting process, we are free immediately. And to know what it is like to live and care, we just finished a passage in a verse that said there's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male or female. It's not talking about distinctions being taken apart. What it's talking about is saying, do we understand what it means for all of us to sit as sons and daughters in Jesus and to love one another as such and to care and experience that and know it, to know that freedom in Christ and to not go back. Why does Paul say this? To not go back to a life of slavery to feel that slavery. That's what he's getting to here is the element of of a slave trade uh, you know um, auction and a childless man actually going and this is what the word redeem means going to an auction and seeing someone being put up to be sold as a slave and yet purchasing them not as a slave to become a son and an heir to his entire estate. That's the beautiful picture. That's actually what Jesus has done for all of us. Not just some. He puts himself in that position to purchase us to be heirs and he puts his son in condemnation in order for us to be there. That's the legal ramifications. But how do we not go back into a life of slavery? How do we not go back into idleness when we know that it is deeply embedded in us? In our culture, in our hearts, it's considered, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that that adoption is to be considered and understood more emotional than intellectual in fact i think for many of us that we would think in a church uh, that comes from a reformed tradition with theological terms we we would say we just really think about these things you know you know what God wants us to experience it because it doesn't actually end with the legal idea of his son being put in a position of condemnation. It actually ends with us crying, Abba, Father, verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, that we are to belong. I talk about this often. and I even talked about it the other night at our um, uh, newcomer dessert. <clears throat> that we live in not just a culture, but a city, where it's easy, so many people, like even had said, are moving here so rapidly that it can feel like a, a great place to be entertained, a great place to come and have, feel excitement, but feel deep loneliness. You know, uh, there's a book written by Cheryl, Sherry Turkle called Alone Together, she's an MIT professor. She talked about it in this way, and I thought it was really well put. She's talked about, <clears throat> you know, on social media particularly, that we're creating something for others in consumption. And you find yourself imagining and playing to your audience more and more so that the moments where you're wanting to be known can become a performance. Referring to the lonely crowd, she says. And that the transformation of American character has, is becoming more, instead of inward forming, it's become outward forming, And I find that so to be true, that just as I said, like on a game show, we're wanting to make ourselves so palatable, so attractive outwardly. And social media is easy to be picked on. We do it in a million other ways. That we want to be liked. We want God to think and approve of us in that way, but we already have it. How do we live into that? How do we know? Because loneliness is deep. It says that we're not to go back to living like slaves. We're to live freed like sons and daughters in Him. That we're to go into that. And this is how we do it. We cry, Abba, Father. We are to be in prayer. I know that sounds like a discipline for many of us, but actually what Paul is trying to say is to cry, Abba, Father, was an intentional intimate way it was a coupling it was saying basically saying father twice he's using something for a bunch of greek people that don't speak aramaic he uses an aramaic word why in the world would he do that because he wants to get across to the galatians that his their relationship to god is so deep so intimate the jews didn't use this language the only way they've heard this language is through jesus Jesus himself. It means that we're coming in Jesus to God. That we can feel our sonship. All of the ways that we experience our sin and shame. And we just think, we're not, how can we be children? The moments when you remember, maybe you sat at a dinner table or in a car when you've disappointed your parents. Or maybe you're in a place where you just, you come out of a place where you hate your family, your parents. And thinking about being adopted and experiencing the fatherhood of God feels so disgusting to you. God is redeeming the fact that what he's saying to you is he he wants you to talk to him in a way and be in his life. He doesn't look to you. How can you say Abba Father to someone if they're looking at you with complete disapproval? You can't. He doesn't look at you in that way. If we first know that he's adopted us and he doesn't call you secondary child, he calls you son and daughter. That's been a part of my life. Some of you here may have experienced that. I don't look at myself as an adopted father. I look at myself as father. I don't see my children in that way. I don't think of it. I'm their daddy. And that's never changed. And that has been questions in my mind. That's how we think. God thinks of us is, okay, yeah, maybe. Okay, maybe God brings us in as a father. Maybe he adopts us, but he doesn't. Does he really know my past? Does he re- maybe he's adopting me with all the mess. Oh, yes, he is. He knows exactly what he's getting when he brings you in. There's a book called Praying Life by Paul Miller, and he writes about why, what is prayer? It's not a discipline, it's us talking to a, a father who not just we are afraid to talk to, but we need and wish we had. He said, Learning to pray doesn't offer you a less busy life, it offers you a less busy heart. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with a wandering mind. Come messy. Don't be embarrassed by how needy your heart is and how much it needs to cry out for grace. Just start praying. Experience the fact that God has brought you in. Experience the fact that you have this life. Look, when we <clears throat> adopted our first son, Jake, uh, almost 10 years ago, um, I remember on that Tuesday when we went <clears throat> to the courthouse and we went into the courtroom and there is this judge, it's our uh, attorney and uh, we, we raise our hands to pledge all of this to our child and the judge um, in his, I guess he, he knows children but doesn't, he gives our son who's six months at that age a um, Tootsie Roll Pop. Now, I don't know if you are putting the math together. You don't give hard candy to a baby, okay? That's like choking hazard. That's like why they have signs and tags on things. Well, you, it's the judge, so you don't, you don't look at the judge and go, hey, judge, you're kind of dumb. I'm not in the position to say that to the judge. But what does my son Jake do? He takes this thing and... Does he just look at it and set it down? No, he starts gnawing through the wrapper to get to the lollipop. So we're just pulling these things out. We're doing, like, this, I mean, we're like, and we have a picture of it. I can't remember if we still even have the lollipop. I think at one point we kept it just to, like, remind us. But here, I remember this picture of him sitting on the thing with the judge. The judge is just beaming. We're beaming. Look, what is going on? We are taking these vows. My son is receiving a brand new name. He's receiving a brand new family. He's receiving, he's gonna leave those doors and leave, receive a brand new life, and what is he concerned about? Tootsie Roll, That is where most of us live. Trying to gnaw through the wrapper to get to the Tootsie Roll when we have a new name. Your name is in Jesus. You have a new family. You're about to come up and feel the shoulders of people next to you that are sons and daughters. You belong not just to God, but to one another. You're not by yourself. When are we gonna actually feel and experience our adoption not just as God the Father, but as sister and brother? That is why we've used that language. It's not just like sweetness, it's actuality. And you get to leave these doors with a brand new life. Look, coming to this table is the, the experience that you need to remind you of this. I hope... hope that you do not come to this table thinking that your sonship or being a daughter has anything to do with you trying to earn it but you will you will want to come to this table and you will want to just have the lollipop but you have to come to this table to know that it is far more. To taste and experience what is true regardless of your feelings so that you can leave and experience and live in that. Because when you taste this, you taste your new name. It is the blood and body of Jesus. When you... Stand here in a semicircle with all of these people. You're experiencing a new family. You cannot deny it. And when you leave these doors, you cannot go back to a life of slavery thinking that it is better. Oh, we will. We will want to go back. We will want to just go back to that lollipop. It's way too easy. But you now know and are reminded and can go back to the one you cry, Abba, Father, show me again the truth of what it means to be a son or a daughter. Let's stand. And as we do,